0: (laughs) Thank you very much. I wasn't expecting a round of applause so early in the evening, but that was very welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm Claire Malcolm, the Chief Executive of New Writing North, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all um, here this evening, both to our shortlisted authors, our guests from the Gordon Byrne Trust and from Faber & Faber, and all our other guests and um, book festival audiences. Thank you all for coming. The setting up of the Golden Byrne Prize was a collaborative venture by Gordon's friends and family and his publisher, Faber and Faber, and was established after his death to keep the memory of his work alive. New Writing North has hosted events with Gordon and worked with him a number of times towards the end of his life, and he was reconnecting with the Northeast, back with the Northeast around that time. So it's a real honor and a real pleasure for us to be um, both involved with this prize and to have been approached to help with it. And it's been great fun so far. We're in the second year of the prize this year, and so far it's all going very well. Establishing the prize from our perspective helps to celebrate one of the most original and exciting writers to have emerged from the Northeast. And I hope it will keep readers engaged with his work, which often explored this region alongside a myriad of other subjects and concerns. Our inaugural award in 2013 was given to the novelist Ben Myers for his book Pig Iron, Ben joined the panel of judges for the award this year, alongside the artist Sarah Lucas, the actor and comedian Julian Barrett, and the novelist and poet John Burnside. We're delighted that the artist George Shaw, a great friend of Gordon Burns, will tonight hand over the award. So you have that to look forward to as well. The Gordon Byrne Prize brings with it a cheque for £5,000 and the opportunity for the winner to spend some quality writing time at Gordon Byrne's cottage and studio in the Borders, which is run by the Trust to support artists and writers and as a creative place for people to go and work. When we put the call out for entries for the award, we received many submissions of work spanning fiction, non-fiction and memoir. A long list of books would whittle down by the readers from the prize partners and the judges took on the really challenging task of reading the shortlist and coming to a decision on the final winner. The 2014 shortlist is for six books that between them push the boundaries of the novel form of language and which seek to give voice to different kinds of experience. All of the books on the list reflect something of Gordon's work and his interests. It's an exciting and stimulating lineup of books and authors. Although I don't get to vote on who will win, I have spent a really enjoyable summer and autumn reading all of the books, Um, so I'm really looking forward to talking to all of the authors this evening. Um, The format of the evening, just to give you an idea of how this will work, um, after another little talk following me, I'm going to talk to um, the shortlisted authors that are here. We'll then have a musical interlude with the Cornshed Sisters, which is going to be very exciting, and then we'll make the announcement of who has won the award. So a packed evening of things. But before we get on with that, I'd like to welcome Angus Cargill, who was Gordon's editor at Faber & Faber, to say a few words. Please welcome Angus.
1: Thank you Claire. Um, Yes, I'm Angus Cargill, uh, Editorial Director at Faber Um, and having not been able to come up for the prize last year, in its first year, I'm really pleased to be here tonight Um, and to say a few words about Gordon and about the prize. Um, Along with Lee Braxton, who's also here tonight, I had the very great privilege of working with Gordon for a number of years. We reissued all of his earlier books and together published his final three books. Those last three books could very crudely be described as a sports book, a novel, and a collection of writing on art. But of course Gordon's work avoided, always avoided, and challenged such easy classification. When I first arrived at Faber in 1999, he was a writer I was aware of without having yet read. And I remember being somewhat intimidated by the original hardback edition of Happy Light Murderers that actual object of the book. It was a huge black book with that subject matter of the West, that title, and that cover. The smiley acid house tablet lying on top of the turned soil, which was of course by one Damien Hirst. But right there on that cover was everything that Gordon stood for. His combination of interests and concerns that made him such a unique and brilliant writer. art true crime, literature, social history, the press, and celebrity culture. All the things he, went on, he explored and interrogated throughout his work and career. He was inspired by the new journalism of the 1960s and 70s in America, as much as the art world he wrote about in Britain and immersed himself in. By the working class northern culture he came from that was disappearing rapidly as he came of age as a writer, and by the national sports and obsessions, snooker in the 1980s, football in the 90s, and reality television in the noughties. All of this came to a head with his magnificent final book, which we published in 2008, Born Yesterday, The News as a Novel, which was once again in its hardback edition, adorned by a Damien Hurst image. That book was deliberately conceived, written, and published to an incredibly tight deadline, which I'm sure Carol will remember. I remember Gordon phoning in daily and emailing daily on how his word count was progressing from Rome. And his shot at a real-time novel was such a unique and inspiring publication to be a part of. And it was also one that really energized and lit up Gordon's imagination. Writing about the book, um, writing about the novel in The Independent, Deborah Orr um, concluded that, as a novel, it's truly experimental, not least in its confirmation that however you cut it, truth just keeps on asserting itself as stranger than most of the stuff we call fiction. Or maybe it's the other way around. And as has been said before, it is that deliberate ambiguity, that middle ground which all of Gordon's work represented and inhabited, And that is what the Gordon Byrne Prize has been set up to celebrate, to promote, and to support. The shortlist this year is, I think, absolutely superb. The judges have come down to a brilliantly varied and eclectic list of books, from fiction to nature writing to travel logs, from the landscape of Britain and the immediate aftermath of the Norman invasion to the contemporary Midwest of America struggling to come to terms with its involvement in Iraq. And from people as varied as novelists, journalists, and musicians. So while wildly varied, all these books clearly share the spirit of Gordon's work. That creativity, that bravery, and that refusal to be pigeonholed easily. So I'd just like to say on behalf of Lee and myself, who miss Gordon very much, and Faber as a whole, that we're thrilled to be part of this prize along with the Trust and with New Writing North. And we hope that it will prosper, go on championing and calling attention to such brave writing and continue to remember and honor Gordon's life and his work. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Angus. That's wonderful. I'd like to invite the shortlisted writers to the stage. Maybe you could clap them as they come up. (laughs) (laughs) You sit there. They have to sit in a certain order, so we must get this right. (laughs) It's to do with microphones. It's nothing to do with the (laughs) prize. Well, it's really lovely to have you all here. We're missing two of our um, shortlisted authors, and we have video contributions that will queue into the event this evening um, for those two. But I'll begin by introducing Richard Benson, Richard House, Paul Kingsnorth, and Olivia Lang. So um, very excited to have you all here. I'm going to introduce each of the authors and then ask them um, to read a little bit from their work. I will then ask a couple of questions. Um, Which we haven't got hours and hours to do this, unfortunately, so I really have only been able to ask a couple of questions. So hopefully, I'll manage to grasp the kind of things we need to know about the book. So we'll begin with Richard Benson. He is the author of the memoir The Farm, that was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award in 2005 and was a Richard and Judy Book Club choice in 2006. He was born in the Dern Valley in South Yorkshire and currently lives in London. It is his family in and around the Dern Valley that inspired his second book, The Valley. It has been described as an extraordinary book about hidden lives by The Telegraph. It has reached our shortlist due to its epic and ambitious evocation of the lives of generations of a northern working class family and for Richard's audacious approach to giving voice to the characters in his book. Would you like to introduce The Valley and read a little bit
2: for us? Yes, I'd yep. d- yeah, okay. Um, thank you. Um, the, um, the The idea for the valley was really um, something that grew out of talking to, um, to to people at my grandmother's funeral. She lived to be ninety two, and she died in two thousand and two. And it felt that her life had spanned this kind of period in the twentieth century, where um, I, in the coal mining areas, they, they they'd come from a uh, very difficult sort of period after the First World War, and, they, uh, and worked very hard to improve the the, the kind of lives that they, they lived and, and and could expect. Um, and obviously, uh, at the heart that was for, for me, because I was a teenager during it, was the 84-85 miners' strike, which I know is something that sort of resonates around in, in this area as well. Um, and I. A, a, a big part of the book, there were two sort of impulses really, one was trying to understand the, um, the way that history and personal lives had, had, had interacted leading up to that and then afterwards and I wanted to do that, um, when I thought about the form and the way I wanted to do it, um, I, I was thinking what, you know, what's my way into it and, and I, thought about, I thought about my grandmother and she was a big reader and she used to read these enormous uh, sort of family saga books and it was, it was really, it's one, one of the things that I remember is about an, an introduction to reading where I'd kind of, you know, I'd, I'd been little and saying to her, uh, you'd say, what's, what's happening in the book, where magical oh, you know, she's a bad, and she's going to come to a bad end, this one, and, you know, <laughs> and all that, and I get involved like this, I, I used to think, well, you know, what would happen if uh, if I tried to put a real life family, her family and her, into a into a family saga and, and like that. So what would uh, how, w- how would it turn out? I have to tell you, it doesn't necessarily turn out quite as neatly as uh, as it does in the in the uh, fictional books. Um, so the the bit that I wanted to read tonight was um, uh, fr- a, 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 a little section of three different uh, uh, passages from the um, fr- d- during the miners' strike and. Um, there are two things to say. Really, one is that the um, initially uh, it, it's about someone called Linda, who's my auntie, um, and, and she worked in, a co- in the Collier office, colliery offices in, in Higgleton in South Yorkshire. And one of the things that I wanted to write about was the, the women who had been on strike. They'd, they'd never, never acknowledged that um, women took part in the strike, as well as um, having the support groups. Um, so that's that's what she's kind of about here. Um, and then I just like to explain that in the in the second parts, uh, which are about men on picket duty, um, there is some bad language um, at the at the end. Um, <laughs> obviously, mining community, no one's that surprised, right? But um, the, it, it's I just wanted to say it, it's not gratuitous. The reason that the bad language is there is if if you would realise if you'd read the whole book is that. Um, the it, it's the police using it, and and one of the things that people talked about was that there was when the Metropolitan Police came to the Dern Valley uh, and they were swearing at miners on the picket lines, and people recurrently said to me when I was doing the research, um, it was the first time they'd heard the police swearing. So that's why the the impact was 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 what it what, what it was. So. When Linda visits the Goldthorpe DHSS office, the woman behind the desk says, I'm sorry, love, but we're not allowed to give you an out part from emergency food vouchers for your lad. They're £5 a week. The woman looks sympathetic, but sounds as if she's explained this a 100 times already that morning. What, even though both me and my husband are on strike? asks Linda. I know a lot of women have got jobs and can support their husbands, but me and John both work at Pitt. And she wants to add... The maintenance from my ex-husband is a rare privilege, and my son will need a uniform for senior school in September. But at the other counters, women are saying similar things, and there are still more waiting behind them. And the DHSS woman can't help. It makes no difference, I'm afraid. That's law now, love. Aye, so that women will nag their husbands to go back to work when they can, uh, so they can feed the kids. As I said, Mrs. Burton, says the woman, I can give you a voucher. Women from Hygate, Goldthorpe, and Bolton on Dern organise a soup kitchen at the Goldthorpe Miners' Welfare Hall. In the mornings and afternoons, they stand outside GT Smith's supermarket with cardboard boxes, and shoppers throw in tins and packets of food. In the welfare hall, they cook the food into pies and stews and serve them up as meals for a few pence. Linda and John go there for their dinner. The mood is cheerful, but as she eats her way through a plateful of stew, Linda looks at all the men and women and their kids sat at the rows of tables and feels two competing emotions. The first is admiration of how people are helping each other. The second is sadness that people have to eat in a soup kitchen in the first place. It reminds her of her mam's stories about Walter and the distress committees in 1926. We shouldn't be doing this, she thinks, because it's what our grandparents, our mams and dads thought they'd saved us from. She looks at John, her husband, who is not talking much, and guesses that he feels the same, encouraged by the comradeship and rueful about the circumstances. She's seen news stories about how women across the mining communities are organised in support for the striking miners. Wives and girlfriends and men on strike have formed campaign groups as part of a movement called Women Against Pit Closures. Some say it's changed them before the strike, They were limited to being mothers and housewives, and they would never have dared to go on demonstrations, let alone speak publicly at meetings, as some of them do now. And some of their mothers dislike it and tell their daughters they're not being proper wives. But the women say that even when the strike's over, they won't revert to the way they lived before. The communities are as much theirs as they are the men's, aren't they? What the press reports do not mention are the women from the officers and the canteens who are themselves on strike, and this is because, Linda assumes, these women do not fit into any convenient journalistic stories. But if a reporter had thought to ask Linda Burton, she would have told them that the women who work at the pits are as proud of their industry as the men. And she would have recited for the reporter the name of every pit in the Doncaster area. Asken, Barnborough, Bentley, Brodsworth, Cadeby and Denaby, Frickley, Goldthorpe, Highgate, Hatfield, Markham, Rosington, Thorne. And after that, she would have told him the names of the seams, and she would have told him which pits were fiery and which were wet. And she would have told him about when she was a young girl travelling on the pit bus with her dad driving, and about the miners with their dirty faces getting on the bus and touching the top of her head and putting mint humbugs into her hand. The women had always been involved in coal mining. They might be involved in different ways now, and they were able to talk about it more in public, but the history belonged to them as much as it did the men, and the men knew it. At the end of November, Gary Hollingworth joins the picket at Kiverton Park, a pit village outside Sheffield, near to where Walter Parkin was born. As they stand on a long straight road leading down to the pit, the police put up lights that shine intense white arcs into the picket's eyes, and they turn on a machine that emits a high-pitched noise. Word goes about that somewhere down the road, a picket's been trampled by a horse. Using loudhailers, the police are shouting orders, make way, make way, you're obstructing the path of an ambulance. No one can see any ambulance. We're The unamplified picket's voices sound puny. We have a casualty, stop obstructing the ambulance. Now everyone's looking round. you lying buggers, we're not stopping out. You've not even asked for an ambulance. Disperse now, we have a casualty. And then, without warning, the police lines part to allow through a dozen mounted policemen. The horses gallop into the pickets, and in the darkness, Gary sees the long truncheons and the sparks of horseshoes on tarmac. With the rest of the men, He runs to the grass verge. The horses pull up, rein in, and go back, and there is a standoff. The officers are calling in reinforcements from other collieries. He watches now, but he senses the police will come at them again. Everyone senses it. In the doorways of houses facing the road, men and women appear and shout to the fleeing miners, ''Come on, get in here, quick!'' And then they slam the door shut as the men go inside. But the mounted police charge again, and the foot police follow, smashing the doors open with their boots and their shoulders. As they enter one garden, a woman rushes to the door. What are you doing? There's no one in this house. But the policeman shouts into her face, Get out of the way, you fucking Yorkshire whore. She flinches. He kicks the door open and stomps inside, and three other policemen following him, straight through her house, out the back door and into the backings. And soon, it's all the way up the street. Police kicking in doors, marching in, dragging men out of houses. Gary sees one mounted policeman ride right up to a house with a broken door, and the horse put its head through the doorway. Women shouting, men shouting, kids crying, dogs barking. And all along that road, the police shouting in their strange accents. Yorkshire slags, northern bitches, fucking northern bastards in their fucking northern slums. The street lights and the pit lights are still on, but daylight's breaking. And over the rooftops, the sunrise looks beautiful. And in the streets the fight continues. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Richard. Can I ask you to tell us a little bit about how you... Set off thinking about this book and researching this book because you've given us a taste there of one part of the a very big story. Can you say a little bit about?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was um, the 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 real um, thinking behind it was that I I wanted I was interested in my grandmother's life and I was interested in this span of history. The thing that really that. I think when you, the thing that really starts you writing sometimes is you, it's you are presented with an image or you find an image that you just want to go back over and over. Um, and the thing that I, uh, uh, that someone mentioned to me, my cousin Gary, who was in the, the, the person in that uh, last part, told me um, at the funeral was that he had, um, he'd always wanted to have a, a job at a desk. He was a bright bloke, but he'd been kind of sucked into mine. He wanted to have a job at a desk. He'd finally got the job at the desk. And... Um, when he finally became a social worker. And he'd had a very dangerous job at the pit. He'd been involved in a lot of explosions, he'd brought bodies out of pit and stuff like that. Um, and I, I remember asking him how he dealt with it, and he used to say he just used to go and have a pint in the pub and that would be it. When he got the office job, he, um, he couldn't stand it, because he said, I, 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 I can't understand why you have to have meetings about everything. And um, hated but he got a phobia about people taking bottles of water into me and said why are they all drinking bloody water in the meat and then um, <laughs> um and um he couldn't he, he found it very hard he just moved from one sort of work to another and at the, at the funeral he told me that um he developed he'd got this kind of rash and he'd been to the doctor and the doctor told him to um, to take time off because he had nervous exhaustion and stress um and um he's, you know he's, he. he he, he got really ang- a bit angry with the doctors. He said, you realise what I used to do. I can't be a sort of stressed person. And I just thought that for me, there's something about that, about the transition from an old world to the to, to the new one. And I, I just kept thinking about that, really, That's one of the reasons.
0: And I know from talking to you previously at our launch event, you about some of the research and the way you researched into your own family and interviewed. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Family. Once,
2: once, because because I wanted it to be. What I really wanted to do was not not to write um, a, a, an obvious sentimental book about um, about the industrial north. Really, I wanted it to be real. So, um, um, I, uh, I, I, all uh, everything's based on stuff that I found out from interviews. So I just I, I, I identified all the living family members, members who had a bearing on 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 that sort of on the nucleus that I was part of, um, and interviewed. Or, you know, all, all of them, some of them several times because he'd kind of go over it and he'd, he'd remember different stuff again, but it was, uh, so I spent, I mean, I t- spent six years doing it, just kind of, you know, over and over again. I was very lucky because, in fact, by the end of it, some of them, um, some of the people were joking that they wouldn't speak to me because five people in the family actually died in the course of me, doing. because they got quite, I was interviewing a lot of older people. And they all used to say, "I'm not speaking to thee." <laughs> <laughs> he' has the curse of the book. Um, but fortunately, but you know, I, but I was able to record the memories before they went. So, That's amazing.
0: <laughs> but also, um, families lie to each other, don't they? Or they remember things to suit their own version of
2: history. Did well, you have much of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, d- I did. And I mean, there was th- there was the obvious stuff where Pete, I mean, um, the, the family mythology was was very different to what you could. Um, you know, what you could actually fi- uh, prove in terms of history. So there's a very big family myth in our family. My mum was born as the bombs were falling on Sheffield, um, and I, if you look at the, uh, if you just, you know, you look at the records for the Sheffield Blitz, and no bombs had fallen for five months um, <laughs> either side <laughs> of my mum being born. So to, so I had to break that too. Actually, but that is, you know, sorry, believed that for uh, 60, 70 years, but actually it's not true. Um, so there's that. But also, I, I was, um, you know, there were people revealed things that had kind of sat dormant and had never really been brought up. And one of those things that my, my grandmother had had an affair with um, my grandad's cousin and one of my aunties was possibly the guy's daughter. So um, that was an interesting revelation. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you know, chapter 10 is going to be a bit longer. Thanks for that, Linda. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, uh, people, if you've read the book, you will know it is completely gripping, partly because of these stories playing out over such a broad length of time, you know, it makes it the drama of that. But I think one of the reasons you've ended up on our shortlist for this award is the, choice, the choices you made around how to write this story. And right. from the extract you read, you give voice to characters, you write things that you right. weren't there to see. And I wonder if that was something you knew from the start you would do or that evolved as a way
2: to tell this story? Yeah, I mean, I was I was interested in. This makes me think of the connection with Gordon Burns' work now, because I, I, you know, I think that he, for me, one of the things that I always found very interesting about what he did was work with people who, you know, he recognised the fact that in what we call real life, day to day life, people might be acting with like slightly fictional narratives in their head, and they might have a, a, a slightly outlandish version of what they're doing. Their notion of what they're doing might be to do with received stories and, and, and ideas about ab- about who they are. And then, so he's taking that and then, in, in, um, uh, you know, exposing that and, and, and almost like redeeming the, the, the actuality from that. Um, and I was quite interested in... Um, do it, looking at a subject that had a lot of mythology around it. I mean, there's a lot of myths around the Niners' history, and it's, it's bound up with, with 20th-century British history. Um, and, the, um, and letting... Well, in some ways, looking at the, where people had, had ideas of historical narrative and that made them do certain things. And then, on the other hand, just looking at the reality of some of those events that whose you know official recorded version isn't necessarily true for everyone really so for example that you know in the, if you look at the you know the, the, any documentary about the miners strike you will have the idea that everybody was out every day on a picket line you know it wasn't really true as minority of miners were ever on picket lines um, and, I, and, I, and I was kind of interested in looking at the experiences of people who who weren't doing those of officially recorded things mm.
0: brilliant thank you We're going to move on. This is going to be a very frustrating evening because there's so much to talk about with all of these books. But we're going to move on to Richard House, who is an author, filmmaker, artist and lecturer. He's the author of two previous novels, Bruiser and Uninvited, that were published by Serpent's Tale in the 1990s. He's a member of the Chicago-based collective Ha Ha and the editor of a digital magazine, Fat Boy Review. His 2013 four-volume novel, The Kills, reached our shortlist because of its engrossing, addictive narrative, which is coupled with an experimental approach to storytelling, which includes filmed elements to accompany the prose. The novel takes as its starting point the misappropriation of funds from the US government's commissioning of the rebuilding of a part of a city in Iraq. A man who was involved is asked to disappear, and then through a complex and thrilling narrative inv- we. We, the reader, are involved in a connected series of stories that unfold across time and continents. The Kills is a riveting political meta-thriller. It's fantastic. I was looking at reviews of this book, and it's, it could be almost anything. It, kind of People talk about it as a thriller, a meta-work um, meta of literary fiction. It is all of those things, and it's also a really fascinating meditation on identity. The novel was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize and has been described as one of the most unnervingly intelligent, technically audacious and disquieting books you are likely to read this year. Richard, come and tell us more about The Kills.
3: Thank you. Um, What to say? It's uh, four books in one. Um, And uh, basically the narrative revolves around um, a scam of contractors in Iraq who are working there because they need to work there, and who are being used to appropriate money. Um, The third book is a separate narrative, which is a crime novel, and it's used as an example because uh, all all the narratives involve people who are European or American. And the third novel is a novel of occupation, essentially. Uh, what I'm going to do is read the really unhappy beginning of the second book. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in part of the research, I, I, I did want to look at what was, um, what was happening in Iraq right now. And um, I found out about the, these burn pits, which is where all waste was burned that the military had brought in. And there are severe health consequences of those. So I start the second uh, novel, um, which deals with uh, the body of the scam, which is building a city in Iraq in the middle of the desert, which is clearly a crazy thing to do. It's not going to happen. And they're going to build this city on a burn pit. So to start the novel, I thought the best way is to introduce all the characters and how they're going to die. Like I said, apologies. Okay, so this book is The Massive, and this section is called Meat. By the time he arrived at the pioneer residential home in Normal, Illinois, Louis Francesco Hernando Santo had discarded his full family name and much of his past. Throughout his final seven years at the home, he never spoke about his family, his business the time he spent with Rem Gunnison at the burn pits in Camp Liberty, or his participation in two killings. Only once, in direct answer to the question, did Luis Fernandez admit that when he was 32, he'd abducted a man from his home, drugged him with a horse tranquilizer, and abandoned him in a secure room without food and water. While he couldn't be certain that he caused the man's death, he didn't doubt that this had been achieved. For 36 years, Lewis suffered suffered from psoriasis and crescent-shaped sores at his elbows and the base of his scalp, which sometimes bled and set an irritation deep into his bones, about which he never complained. In the year before he died, he lost his sight and became so absent that when residents spoke with him, they expected no reply. The staff washed and dressed him, fed and managed him from room to room. In the afternoons, they sat him in the parlour, where he leaned toward the window, his face toward and following the sun. Everyone noticed in that last fall less and less response. Lewis died quietly, watched over by another resident, Dorothy Salinas, who'd known him from the day he'd arrived. And while Salinas could could, could be counted as a friend, she knew little about him. Except that he'd spent some time in Montreal and slept rough for a period before returning to the Midwest where eventually he set up a small holding in Lansing to which he devoted the majority of his working life. In the, month before his move, in the month prior to his move to normal, Lewis signed his business over to his sons who in turn sold up just as soon as they could and moved their families out of state and did not stay in contact. Lewis had no complaints. Only once did he open up and mention that a long time ago he'd followed a course of action he shouldn't have, and he supposed that Canada was the way he worked this out and that isolation helped compress this problem to a manageable size. While preparing his body, the funeral home found a tattoo on his right shoulder, an eagle with a standard emblazoned with the word Santo. Lewis's family, his two sons with their wives and five children, drove from Florida in a shabby three-day convoy. On the morning of the funeral, under a clean winter sky, the attendants hid in the parking lot between fat-backed pickups and smoked dope. And they were soon joined by Lewis's younger son, Rick, who spoke without emotion about his father. Lewis, by his report, was a man who would not settle, a man agitated at life, deliberately at odds with everything about him. He'd lived with his father just long enough, then fled like his brother before him, because you can only spend so much time with a man who seems to be in another room or another town, just someplace else. Although he knew that his father had spent time in the Middle East, he wasn't sure in which country. The subject just never came up. There were no stories, no accounts of service, nothing to help him admire the old man. The attendants shared their marijuana and dug their boots into the gravel as they listened. After two deep tokes, Rick glanced back at the figures outside the funeral home and said that he should get going. Yep, they were off already. Then, to their embarrassment, he began to cry. He wiped his eyes with the heels of his hands and said that he didn't understand why he was crying because he didn't. No, he'd never loved the old man. It wasn't either that he hated him. Lewis was difficult to be with, difficult to like, difficult to love. And when you're young, aren't you supposed to be unconditionally loved just loved without having to earn or deserve it. Rick looked across the parking lot for an answer and found a colourless prospect of tracked houses, a scuffed sky, low-slung telephone cables. When they drove away, he said, that will be it, finito, no reason to return. The attendant shifted back on the heels and said, yep, they supposed it went like that. Luis Luis Francesco Hernandez was buried without the family in attendance. (laughs) Cheers.
0: (laughs) Thank you Richard. The Kills is epic and it's vast and wonderful in that epic vastness. I can't imagine how you began to write this book. Can you talk a little bit about where where you started and how it emerged
3: I started it was very simple I, I uh, wanted to there's a, a book I really love by uh, um, Leonardo Shasha uh, which is uh, he, he wrote about the mafia and he uh, but he, he, he always said that the mafia is like a verb it's like a doing thing um, rather than uh, you know the sort of traditional notion we had so I, I was just in love with that work and wanted to write something similar and went to Naples and and it, it was a good thing to do, because I was just doing it all wrong, and uh, um, I realised that I'm trying to write about something that I don't really have the authority to write about, and at the same time, um, the, uh, we were getting more heavily involved in Iraq, and, and I, I, I just the two things kind of came together to me, in, in, in a way. It, it felt that under my name, stuff was happening that I hadn't actually given permission for. And I felt hugely angry about it. And, uh, um, yeah, that was the genesis. And I, uh, the, 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 So the crime novel, I sort of set aside and started writing the three other novels, which are about the uh, reappropriation of funds and stuff. Um, but I, I, wanted, I didn't want it to be all this bleak, unhappy stuff. I, I wanted there to be games where... Um, so basically, uh, in in the other in the the three novels that deal with Iraq, they're all reading this really bad crime novel, like a, and the one I'd abandoned. Um, so, so I that didn't was think it was stuff. that bad. I was quite scary. <laughs> 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 when I abandoned it, it was just it was bad.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um There's a great. I mean, you write with great authority about the um, Iraq-based stuff, and I wondered. I mean, I you know just how much research you were doing into that, and that decision to take, the, to view the situation in Iraq through the reconstruction stuff, the money going into it in a different way.
3: I, I did um, just a wealth of research, and uh, you know, thankfully with the internet, uh, peop- not just information, but people are really accessible, and once I started talking and, and, re- and, and uh, finding out stuff about it, I found that people were really forthcoming and, and willing to, willing to offer up information, so... So that helped. Um, also, I, I come from a military family, so the um, that the the whole um, network that I wanted to talk about was really familiar to me. Okay.
0: And do the burn pits exist?
3: They do, um, uh, which is uh, awful. Um, there are uh, very many people who are um, uh, seriously ill because of the burn pits. So basically. Everything that was used in Iraq was brought in, was imported, um, and was burned. And that went from uh, styrofoam cups and plates. Just imagine the, the, the number of um, uh, utensils and stuff brought into the country that was burned uh, in, in unsupervised open pits daily alongside um, stuff that shouldn't be burned, munitions, body uh, parts, just all dumped in and, and burned without proper i um, they you know so in some places people didn't even have uh if it, you know proper sort of equipment to deal with it they, they pour aircraft they, everything's dumped into the these pits and uh then aircraft fuel is is sort of poured onto it which is like really dangerous and really toxic and then they'll throw a hand grenade in and blow it up and, uh, and, you know, which is sort of great fun, like, you know, and, uh, but hugely, hugely toxic. And then when that's happened, when that's full, that's filled in, and then it's dug out a bit more. So you have these massive pits just snaking out into the desert. And, and yeah, they're, they're true, yeah.
0: And manned by people who aren't military. Who are Man,
3: manned so. by people who are there because they need a job, because they, maybe they've done something a little wrong and... You know, they, they, uh, they need money or um, they're given, you know, an option, you go there or you go to prison. So, and uh, yeah, I wanted to write about that. Yeah,
0: and done. the other interesting thing to talk about with this book is the digital side. Yes. Because there's a whole, as a reader, there's a whole other, I don't know, I mean, I, I found it hard how to think about it because it, 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 it is the book, but there's a whole other side yeah. that you can read, or watch and listen to in parallel to reading the book. Was that there from the start or... Was
3: not necessarily, I, I, I trained as an artist before I, I started writing, and uh, when I, when the publisher picked the book up, they were, they were really intrigued that this was a series of books, and how will we articulate that and, and they decided uh, well, we decided that um, digital was a really good way to go, that you could have a book come out a month they 'd still be associated with each other, and um, that oppor- you know as an artist, that opportunity is just come on you know i 've got to do something and and uh, so I studied developing these short. There's about forty extra films or videos, and the idea is that they'd be between uh, just under a minute to no no longer than five minutes. There would be separate narratives. So if you're reading about, there's there's one one of the narratives is this guy on the run uh, through Turkey, and he meets this uh, these student filmmakers. <laughs> And uh, so really you, you, could, you could pause <laughs> and you could learn about why one of the filmmakers is so cagey and, and it would be a self-standing narrative and, and uh, there's no, there are no actors in them. There are just sort of these, these as, as beautiful as I could make them, shots of uh, landscape and there would be either a narration uh, running alongside that or text telling you sort of a self-contained story that would go with it.
0: There were also phone calls, though. There were, because I wondered how oh, easy it had been was, to...
3: Yeah, the to phone keep calls were so much fun. I was seeing that there's, uh, there's one set of characters where um, this uh, youth, this boy, Eric, has been using his mother's computer to look at porn. Like, like that's going to happen, right? And... Uh, um, so she's sort of, you know, uh, she's finding out stuff about her son that, you know, a mother probably doesn't need to find out about her son. And and I wanted to express that. I wanted to sort of articulate that stickiness in a different way. So I have, <laughs> there were three uh, phone calls, and it's the only time we used an actress. And uh, there are three phone calls, and it's just her side of calling up a, her son and just getting an answering machine. And then she realizes through the three phone calls that he's just. He's not picking up, and he's having fun. He's asked her to do something for him. He's just having fun. So, uh, yeah, some of them are a little wicked, I think.
0: And how have readers responded to that that side of things?
3: Um, not how I'd expected. I think the whole digital um, aspect is is really tricky for people right now. I mean, there, there is this um, sort of slow argument that. Uh, the digital is replacing the physical, which just is just unreal. I, I don't I don't see that as being the case, and and I think there's, you know, if we if you get a, a DVD and it's got sort of extra stuff, that's easy to understand. I think it's less easy to understand a novel that it's sort of why would you have these extra bits, and and for me it's just part of a um, I don't know like. Uh, um, it's almost like an annotated book and mm. I, I like that idea I, I think there's huge potential there
0: and it works very well I read The Kills on an e-reader and that works very <laughs> very well to take you, you know, in and outside of actual text great, thank you um, our, the next author we're going to hear from is going to be beamed into us via video it's not a live feed so we don't have to panic about that um, <laughs> but we will eventually put the lights down and watch it Um, Willie Vlatin Vlatin, is our next shortlist author for the prize. As well as being a prize-winning author of three acclaimed novels, The Motel Life, North Line, and Leon Leon on Pete, Willie is also the frontman of the band Richmond Fontaine, and he's actually on tour with them at the moment, which is why he's not here. And he hails from Portland in Oregon. His shortlisted novel, The Free, is centred on the story of a wounded soldier, Leroy, who comes back from the Middle East to a home for disabled soldiers. There he tries to commit suicide, but is saved by Freddy, the night watchman, and nursed back to life by Pauline, a nurse at the local hospital. As Leroy travels into a morphine-created world known as the free, the people around him battle through the trials and tribulations of their daily lives. The novel is notable in that it takes on some of the big, important issues of the day, war, loyalty, and economics, but explores them through the lives of very ordinary people. Critics have said that his writing has an ambitious humility, um, I thought The Free was a really uplifting, a very moving novel. And we're going to hear from Willie, um, say a little bit of think about his nomination, and then read an extract. I hope.
4: <laughs> and then, um, the Free uh, started, uh, in a way, as kind of a, a fevered, uh, distress call to the patron saint of nurses, Camelius de Delellis. And I, I thought he was so interesting, because he was a uh, a soldier who was a, g- a gambling and alcoholic, which I d- identified with the, the latter of those two. The, and, um, and he's the founder, in a way, of, of the Red Cross. And um, I wrote the book hoping he would look after characters. I, I wanted to kind of shake him and say, hey, remember uh, Leroy, the, the, the soldier, and Freddie, the guy that works two jobs and has a kid with, born with severe disabilities, and remember the nurse, Pauline, who you know, is kind of drowning in the darkness of seeing, you know, uh, death and people in such despair day after day. Um, So, uh, it was a book, it was the hardest book I've ever attempted because it was such big themes Um, and I wrote it, the first draft, six months and then spent three years editing it. I I wrote it 13 times over and over. I'd finish one draft and then I would just start over again and rewrite the whole thing. because I wanted to do my best with, with the, such big subjects. And if, if I was going to send a distress call to the patient saying the nurses, I wanted to make sure I'd, I you know wore a suit and put on my best, best stuff. Uh, so that's kind of how the free started. Leroy Curvin opened his eyes to see a woman in a blue and white star bikini holding a pneumatic drill. He could see her blonde hair and high heels and thin long legs. For the first time in seven years, he could see her without blurred vision. He could see her clearly from the glow of a small colored nightlight. He lay in a twin bed and looked at the girl. He could read the company name below her on the calendar, Jackson's Tool Supply. He remembered that his cousin worked there. Suddenly he could think things through. He could put things together where in the past years he'd been unable to. It was like his mind had suddenly walked out of a never ending snowstorm. Tears dripped down the side of his face in relief. Was he finally free? Was he really himself again?
0: Well done, Willie. <laughs> I'm sure he would have really enjoyed the evening if he'd been able to come. Um, Paul Kingsnorth is our next author. He is the author of two non-fiction books, One, No, Many Yeses, and The Real England, and a collection of poetry, Kidland. He is a former journalist and deputy editor of The Ecologist magazine, and in 2009, he founded The Dark Mountain Project, an international network of writers, artists and thinkers in search of new stories for troubled times. The Wake, the novel that is on our shortlist, was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize earlier this year and has just been shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize, which honours experimental fiction. The Wake was published by Unbound, the crowd-sourced publisher, Um, and it has received a great deal of attention, I think, because of that. It reached our shortlist due to its imaginative and inventive use of language and its thrilling and urgent narrative, which submerges the reader into the strangeness of the past while allowing them to bear witness to the urgency and confusion of the time very directly. I'll let Paul tell you a bit more about The Wake, and maybe I'm very looking forward to how he's going to (laughs) read this. So please welcome Paul Kingsnorth.
5: Uh, Thank you. Um, Yes, it's always interesting doing this. (coughs) This is a book which is set in and immediately after the Norman conquest of England in 1066. Um, And I wanted to tell a particular story which I came across myself about six years ago and I hadn't heard of before. And which just grabbed me immediately. Which was the story of this great underground guerrilla movement of resistance against what the Normans brought the great terror that they brought to England. Um, and I read about this story, and I wondered what that would have been like to be part of. Um, it's a very old story, it's also a very contemporary story. A um, land is invaded, and people fight back. Um, and I wondered um, why I didn't know this story, being English and having studied history here, why it's kind of rushed over in our historical narrative, and I wondered what it would be like to dig deep into it. I started writing the book took me a long time to work out what I was writing. I wanted to write it from the point of view of an ordinary man, and I settled on a free farmer from the Lincolnshire Fens called Buckmaster. Um, and what I ended up doing with this book, for reasons I perhaps will discuss in a minute, um, is I discovered that obviously a thousand years ago, the people of England spoke a language we now call Old English, which is the, the, uh, the ancestor of our language, but it's a very different beast. Um, I couldn't make this book work by writing in contemporary English, and I realized that that was because my characters wouldn't have spoken it. Um, I couldn't write it in Old English because I can't speak it, and uh, I would have had probably about three readers from academic departments of various universities. Uh, What I ended up doing um, is coming to a sort of middle... uh, It was an insane project. I came to a middle ground of, 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 of a middle language. I called it a shadow language, that's somewhere between Old English and Modern English, and it's supposed to recreate the sense of what Old English may have been, and to take the reader into a very different world because Old England was, even though it's the ancestor of the country we're living in today, a very alien place, um, which makes reading it very interesting. Um, <laughs> funny thing is, a lot of people say that um, when they read this book, it's the first ten pages in particular are so confusing that they find it easier if they read it out loud and I realised by the time the book was published that I'd never actually done that myself and then people started asking me to come and do things like this. Um, So I'm going to attempt to do it, not for the first time, I'm getting better at it. Um, Actually the language looks stranger on the page than it sounds. One of the interesting things about Old English is that a lot of the words we use have their origins even a thousand years ago so spelling may be different but the words are the same. I'm going to read Buckmaster's... Um, Tale of one of the old English myths one of the myths that everybody in England would probably have known before the Norman Conquest one of the themes of this book is not just the loss of people's land and the loss of their political power but also the loss of an older way of seeing and different versions of the older religions of the English this is the story of Wayland the Smith which some of us particularly from from the south of England may know Wayland the Smith still appears in some of our landscapes today and it's one of the Oldest myths of the Anglo-Saxons. Wayland was known all through his lands as the greatest smith what has ever been. And men come from far parts to beg with him to make them swords for fighting or rings for love. Wayland lived with his two brothers by a great mere in a place known as Wolfdale, by a great halt called Merkwood. One day, these three men, they seen three fugals passing over from the halt, three fugals of great wonder, swans they was. And they come down by the three men, and they become wife-men. For these were swan maidens of the old times, and in them was a great witchcraft. Well, these three maidens, they was wed to these men. And Wayland took as his the wife-man called Allwise. And for seven years, they lived in Wolfdale in bliss. But in the eighth year, these maidens, they was gripped with a lust to go back to their harms. And while the brothers were sleeping, back they gone on their feathers, still like the mourner. When Wayland and his brothers woke in the day and seen their loves had gone, they was broke and bitter, like all light had gone from the world forever. Wayland's brothers, they gone out for Merkwood to find their loves. But Wayland he stopped in Wolfdale, and he stood over the gold ring he had made for all-wise, what she had left him, and he called for her to come back. Well, she never come, but others come to this earnest smith who worked his strength and his craft on his fires in the wood. And one of them was a king of great ephel who lusted after gold like a child after honey. Nithad king, he had heard of the craft of Welland and he sent men with spears to bring him from Wolfdale with all he had made, And these dark men, they took Welland while he slept, and all his gold. They took him to Nithad king, and when Nithad seen all Welland could make, he was full of greed. Welland smith, he says to this poor man, now thou will be smith only for Nithad thy king, and thou will make what I tells thee. And for me alone. And Nithad king, he took Welland's sword for his own, and he took the gold ring, what Welland still kept for his love, and he gave it to his daughter, Bodwild. And then this evil king, he bid that Welland be took to an Eolond, and the strings in his shanks be cut, so that he could not go no other place, but must work only for the king, for like all kings, he was a thief who worked not but took from earnest men. Wayland he worked for some time on this Irland with his broke shanks and his broke heart. But all this time he was thinking of his weird and of the fire he would put under this king. For he would have again his sword and he would have again the ring that should be worn only by his love. To this Irland only the king could come and all others was kept away. But so great was Weyland that many wanted to go to him to see his work. Two who did was the king's sons, who was in greed and gold lust, like their father, and keen to see the hoard, what would be theirs one day. They come to Wayland as he worked, and asked to see the gold, and the things he had made of the gold. And here Wayland, knowing the gods had given him a gift. With his great hammer, he struck them down. And then with his fire, he begun to work. And through the night, the fires could be seen from all strands of the black mere. When day come, Welland called the men of the king to him, and he gave them gifts, what he had made for Nithad and his queen and his daughter, Bodwild. To the king he sent two great cups set in silver and gold, and to the queen he gave gems, and to Bodwild he sent two breastplates of some wonder. Seeing them, Bodwild was taken with their beauty and was moved to see the man who could make such things. So like her brothers, she gan to the eelong where none was lookin'. And like her brothers, then, she was took for the evil her father had done. For well and then he took her maiden head, as he had took her brother's life's. And he know, and then, he was done with this place, for his ware-guild was given him. The great smith, then, he rose into the heaven, like his swan wife had done so long back. He rose on feathers he had made of gold. In the shape of a swan's feathers, and to the king he spake from the heaven, one last time. O great king Nithad says, "Willand, thou hast taken my shanks from under me, but not the heaven from above me. Thou hast taken the ring I made for my love and the sword I made for my belt, and for these things I has taken thy kin and thy world. These cups they drink from; they is the hereford pans of thy sons." And these gems of the queens is the eyes of thy sons. And thy daughter lies in my bed all bleeding. And on her throat are the bones of her brothers turned to gold by my fire. Thy eyes will not see me again, O king. But thy evil and thy sin will live with thee until thou is in the ground. And gone he was then, gone, over the heaven to Mirkwood. To look again for his love. And look and he is still, it is said. And some nights thou may see him on his great gold swan feathers, gripping his hammer still and calling her name under the mourner.
0: Well done, Paul. Thank you. It sounded you. so much better than when I made my husband <laughs> read it to me. <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs> Let's talk about The shadow tone though. This is the thing that has been exciting people about this novel. Um, it's, as you said, not, not completely Old English, but references Old English. Well,
5: and yeah. I mean, the, the, the way it worked was I started writing the book in contemporary English. It wasn't working. Um, I realised it was because they, the characters were effectively speaking a, a foreign language, really. And and I realized then that despite being in the middle of writing a historical novel, that I didn't really read many historical novels. And I thought one of the reasons was that I do find this idea of a character set a certain number of centuries ago, speaking a modern syntax, modern vocabulary, to be very strange. Um, It's the equivalent of them having iPads and cappuccinos, as I say, in the back of the book. But it's very difficult to do anything about without ending up sounding a bit fake. What I started doing was dropping old English words into the text here and there, Uh, mainly nouns, but that just looked weird. So then I took it to such a degree that even I couldn't really understand what I was doing. Uh, And then I thought, I'd better come back a bit. And I ended up in this this middle ground in which what I tried to do was I I set myself a challenge that I would try and write a book in which all the vocabulary would have existed in its original form in Old English. And interestingly, what I found was that I didn't manage to do that. I had to use some modern words, French words, Latin words, but probably 90% of the vocabulary in this book actually does stem from Old English, and I realized how many of the words we use actually do originate before the Norman Conquest. Obviously they've changed an enormous amount, but surprisingly not actually that much sometimes. So I ended up creating this, this language which had the effect of, I think it's had the effect anyway, of taking people into a place that was very alien, because once you get through the first 10 or 15 pages, break through this barrier of opening up and going, my God, what is that? If you persevere, you do end up in a place which which sucks you into a world which I hope looks very different, which is what I was what mm-hmm. attempting to do with it. I mean, it. It was as much as a challenge to myself as to anyone else. I didn't actually expect that anyone was going to publish it, to be honest. <laughs> so um, it was it was more it was much of anything else an experiment to see if I could do that, if that was a, a possible yeah. a, a thing that could be done.
0: I think that's one of the things about the novel that is really exciting, in that it the experiment did work. Because I think as a reader, it takes you into that world in a very real way and the things that are frightening or threatening seem very immediate. Mm. Um, I mean that time in history is a really interesting time. Were you interested in it because of parallels with how we are now? And well it's interesting, I mean I,
5: I'm, I'm very interested in what people do when their worlds fall apart, um, which is something that happens throughout history, but I'm also interested in what a certain type of person does when he's very attached to his sense of what his identity is and his place and then something comes in which he has no control of and takes all of that away which is also a very contemporary story it's a timeless one but i also feel that we're living in a time now in which so much is collapsing from you know <laughs> from ecosystems to economies that we're going through another period in which great forces are converging that we don't have much control over mm. and as much as anything as well as uh, wanting me wanting to tell the story of this particular period which I felt was strangely just neglected when you learn about the Norman conquest at school, you learn about the Battle of Hastings and then you move on to the Plantagenets. you know but there was this huge resistance to try and drive out these the Normans and the land that they were taking from people and the, the, the huge amounts of violence and destruction that they were raining down as occupiers always do. So it was just such an interesting story i didn 't know about, but yeah I, I, I wanted to know what happens to people who have a very rigid sense of themselves when everything 's cut out from under them, and that 's why i 've I've, I've focused quite narrowly on a very particular man, and his particular story as a way of accessing that that world.
0: And there's a real rhythm to the writing as well. I found all the way you structure the telling of the story. We're kind of we it's bookmaster's voice, but he repeats things. He it's almost as though we're in his head some of the time as well.
5: Yeah, and being in his head is a very strange place to be. It's <laughs> not always a very pleasant <laughs> one either. I spent a long time in his head. It's not. I I've, I've found about for about six months after I finished this book that it was impossible to spell any modern words as well. I still, <laughs> I still have a bit of trouble. But, um, yeah, it, it's a kind of incantatory book. That's, it's yeah, it's, it's, a it's a an incantatory book. book. It's a poetic book. I hope that doesn't sound pretentious, but it's not. The interesting thing about this is what you do with a project like this is you... Set yourself quite tight limits within which you can write. So much of the vocabulary and the syntax that would usually be available if you're using modern English, you can't use it. Uh, and that forces you to be more creative, actually, because you have fewer tools to be creative with. Mm. Um, and I ended up writing something in, in an entirely different way to anything I'd ever written before, which was it was really it was a brilliant, exciting thing to do, actually. I recommend it to all writers. Just st- strike away much of what you would use, knock away a lot of the props and see what you can do with a few of them that are left. It's a fascinating experiment for me. Yeah, and like you say, people remarkably, um, yeah, do seem to have connected with it. It's really, it does, it does work, which is always a great relief when you've written a book. Yes,
0: of course, <laughs> and it was published through Unbound, which is um, becoming more well-known as a crowdsourced publisher. Was that a different, have you tried traditional publishing routes? I, I tried book? a
5: few. Um, I couldn't get the big publishers who did see the book interested in it. Um, not surprisingly, it's a very strange experimental thing, really. Um, but I knew uh, John Mitchinson, who's the publisher of Unbound, through other works, and he was very keen, so I thought this would be an interesting thing to try. The way it works with Unbound is you take your project to them, and if they like it, they make a film, and they put it on their website, and you have to attract a certain number of readers to pre-order the book before it's published. So you, you effectively have to find four or five hundred people willing to take a punt on a book that they haven't that hasn't necessarily been finished yet, or even written. Um, and I, I didn't know how this would work, but I was interested in it, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a great thing to do. What it does is it brings you in contact with a community of readers who are part of the publication of the book. They get their names in the back of the book. If they hadn't stumped up £10 or £30 or however much they've paid, the book would never have been published. So it's, it's almost like a, a community of people helping you to publish a, a project that you've, that you've created, and it's, uh, it's a very different feeling from, from other types of publishing. It's just got a different sort of vibe to it. Um, yeah, so it's been the, the whole sort of journey. I mean, I did start off thinking this was a sort of slightly self-indulgent vanity project product that no one would touch, but no, it's been the opposite. So, And, and that's made me realise that there are a lot of readers out there who uh, are just quite keen on interesting, experimental, edgy, strange books, which is great relief, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
0: Fantastic. Well, on that note, I'm going to move on to another strange, experimental, edgy book. Um, from Griff Rees, and I'm probably not pronouncing that in a Welsh enough way, so I do apologise to anyone who is Welsh who's here. He's another of our shortlisted authors that we have a video from this evening. He is known for his work um, around the world for his work as a solo artist, as well as a singer and songwriter with the Super Furry Animals and Neon Neon. His latest album with Neon Neon was produced as an, immersed live concert, an immersive live concert with the National Theatre of Wales. He's shortlisted for his book American Interior. And it's also an album, a film, and an app. In in 1792, John Evans, a 22-year-old farmhand from Snowdonia in Wales, travelled to America to discover whether there was, as widely believed, a Welsh-speaking Native American tribe still walking the Great Plains. In the summer of 2012, Griff Rees, himself a distant relative of Evans, retraced the explorer's route through the heart of the continent by means of what he called an investigative concert tour a series of solo gigs accompanied by a little more than an acoustic guitar, a PowerPoint presentation, and a three-foot-high felt avatar of John Evans, which I don't think is in the video, which I'm a bit sad about. Um, the book brilliantly documents this journey and explores both men's odysseys. And it, the book made our shortlist as it chimes with Gordon's interest in the creative contrast between Britain and American culture and the idea of how we construct and keep hold of myths. So I think we've got... Um,
3: a little message from Griff My my name's Griff Reese. Um it's a huge honour to be on the shop list tonight and um unfortunately I can't be with you later to see man got a dark. Um but a huge thanks to the God and Burn Trust. And New Rating North for having me in spirit, and uh, a big hello to everyone in the room. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna redo some of my book now. So, again, huge thanks for asking me up, and I'll see you all again.
4: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: He could have sent the dog, couldn't he? We could have just had the dog here. Um, Our final author on stage for this evening is Olivia Lang, who is the author of one previous book, To the River, that was a book of the year in the Independent and Financial Times, and was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature on Darchy Prize. She's the former deputy books editor of The Observer, and currently writes for a number of publications, including The Observer, The New Statesman, and The Times Literary Supplement. Her shortlisted nonfiction book, The Trip to Echo Spring, Why Writers Drink, was described by Hilary Mantel as one of the best books she'd read about the creative uses of adversity. The book reaches our shortlist for its thoughtful and reflective look at the connections between drinking, creativity, and the making of art. Please welcome Olivia Lang.
6: Hi. Yeah, so the the trip to Echo Spring, it really... um I was fascinated by the relationship between between writers and alcohol. It's it's a huge subject, and I kind of <coughs> narrowed it down to American male writers of the 20th century. And I came from an alcoholic family, so I had a I had a I had a skin in the game. I had a really personal reason for wanting to get to the bottom of what alcoholism is to understand what drinking does to a life. And I felt like writers were going to be the most eloquent people. The not necessarily the most honest by any means, <laughs> but certainly the most, the most eloquent, the most forthcoming on the subject. And what I did is I went on a journey across America. I travelled New York, New Orleans, Key West. I went over to Port Angeles, kind of tracing places that these writers, and it's, it's Ernest Hemingway, it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, Tennessee Williams, John Cheever, Raymond Carver, and the poet John Berryman, probably the least known of the six, I went to places where they'd lived, where they'd drunk, where they'd died. And what I was trying to do with that journey is to try and map out a trajectory of a drinking life, to look at the sort of intoxicating early phases, to look at really the kind of dark places it takes somebody to. There are at least two, maybe three suicides in the the book. And then to come out the other side and to look at the recovery stories, to look at the people who'd really managed to stop, to start a second life, and that was... That was Raymond Carver and John Cheever, two exceptionally courageous, courageous people. Um, and one of the things that was interesting was that six. I didn't. I knew a lot about their writing. I didn't know that much about their lives necessarily, and I didn't know in advance how much commonality, how many symmetries there were between their lives. And one of the things that I really found was how similar their childhoods were, how much they struggled with anxiety and depression, how much family legacy they carried. What I'm going to read tonight is um, it's about Ernest Hemingway's relationship with his father, which is very much one of, the, one of the elements of his drinking. If you asked Ernest, he'd say Dr. Adams, the father in the Nick Adams stories, bore no relationship to Dr. Hemingway beyond the coincidence of their professions, their place of residence, and the miracle of their vision. In fact, three years back, on 20th of March, 1925, he'd written his father a letter explaining just that. I'm so glad you liked the doctor story, he said. I've written a number of stories about the Michigan country. The country is always true. What happens in the stories is fiction. Maybe. Maybe not. In a letter written in 1930 to Max Perkins, his editor, he changed his tune, saying of In Our Times, the collection that included The Doctor and the Doctor's Wife, the reason most of the books seem so true is because most of it is true, and I had no skill then, nor have much now, at changing names and circumstances regret this very much. Either way, the events in The Doctor and the Doctor's Wife play off the dynamic Hemingway most hated in his parents, In her son's estimation, Grace Hemingway was a bustling, domineering woman, while her husband was gentle and evasive, sometimes overcome by depression and sometimes by fits of rage. Ed was a lifelong teetotaler and suffered until his death an intense anxiety about money. He made his wife and children keep accounts books, and even when they were almost grown, was still enforcing petty rules about dancing and library cards. Excited and exacting, His daughter Marceline put it, irritable and exacting. He spanked his children, but he also had a sense of honour and a love of the outdoors that were immediately infectious. Grace, on the other hand, exerted her personality in ways her son had balked against since boyhood, as well, of course, as having dressed him in infancy as a girl. Isn't that old river forest woman terrible? Hemingway once wrote to his first wife, Hadley, long after their divorce, I don't know how I could have been whelped by her, but evidently was a winner in any all-time bitch show. It was all coming apart, anyhow. After that week in Florida, Hemingway only saw his father once more. In October 1928, a few weeks after the birth of his son Patrick, He visited his parents in what had been his boyhood home, 600 North Kenilworth Avenue, Oak Park, Illinois, the house his mother had both designed and paid for. During the visit, Ed seemed tired, irritable, and not at all well, though he didn't discuss the worries that had begun to bear down on him like a ton of bricks. He'd planned on retiring to a practice in Florida and had brought up land during the real estate boom as an investment but now the crash was underway and his finances as well as his health were precarious. He'd been diagnosed with angina pectoris and diabetes, a touch of the sugar, as he told his colleagues. After Hemingway left, Ed wrote him a brief, fond note. In with the letter was another envelope addressed to my son. Inside there was a poem, written in Ed's slanting hand. I can't seem to think of a way... To say what I'd most like to say to my very dear son, whose book is just done, except give him my love and hooray. He'd put the same odd quotation marks around the word dad in the letter, too. A month went by. Then, on 6th of December, he woke with a pain in his foot. The doctor in him immediately foresaw diabetic neuropathy, gangrene, amputation, an unspooling ticker tape of grim eventuality. In pain and increasingly frantic about an unpayable debt, he told Grace that he was scared. She suggested he talk to a doctor, but he didn't. He went out and returned to the house before noon, going back to the basement where he burned a few papers. Then he called up to his wife that he was tired and would rest before lunch. He went into his bedroom, closed the door, and shot himself in the right temple with his father's 32 caliber, Smith & Wesson. At that moment, Hemingway was eating lunch in the Brevort Hotel in New York, where ten years later Cheever would drink whole afternoons away. His companion was his five-year-old son, Bumby, who just arrived from Paris. After lunch, they went to Penn Station and boarded the Havana Special to Key West. Just outside Trenton, a porter delivered a telegram from Oak Park. It read, Father died this morning. Arranged to stop here if possible. Reeling. He got off the train at Philadelphia, leaving his small son to travel on in the care of the porter. He only had $40 in cash, not nearly enough to get home. He telegrammed to Max Perkins, asking him to wire money by way of Western Union. Then, figuring Max had probably already left the office, he telephoned Fitzgerald who was living at the time in Delaware. Scott answered the phone immediately, immediately agreed. A few days later, Hemingway wrote from Oak Park, you were damned good and also bloody effective to get me that money. My father shot himself, as I suppose you've read in the papers. We'll send you the $100 as soon as I reach Key West. I was fond as hell of my father and feel too punk, also sick, etc., to write a letter, but wanted to say thank you. Punk, a word a woodsman might use to describe a tree that's rotten that looks all right until you realize you can tear into it with your bare hands to max perkins a week later he added more details various worthless land in michigan florida etc taxes to pay on all of it no other capital all gone he had angina pectoris and diabetes, preventing him from getting any more insurance. Sunk all his savings, my grandfather's estate, etc. in Florida. Hadn't been able to sleep with pain, etc. Knocked him temporarily out of his head. Dr. Hemingway, who sometimes washed his son's mouth out with soap. Sometimes beat him with a razor strop. Who was sometimes implacable. Turned temper on a knee, Who drove into his boy a principle of honour and sportsmanship that never wholly left him, who passed from hand to hand, those nourishing loves for the Michigan woods, for clear water, jack snipe, wild geese, dead grass, new corn, deserted orchards, cider mills, and open fires. Open your mouth, boy. One more stone to swallow down.
0: Thank you. In the in the book, you give you give such close attention to the work of the writers as well as what was going on in terms of what they were drinking and where they were in those cycles. I was fascinated by that, and I wondered if it had made you think differently about their work once you knew the I autobiography in the background. So many
6: cycles, so many cycles with their work. I mean, initially, the, the reason I chose that six is because they were all people I loved, and I was aware that I was going to be telling such dark stories about them that it was really necessary. I didn't want to come in and do a hatchet job. I didn't want to expose them. I didn't want to be cruel. So it was really important that it was people who, whose work I thought was extraordinary. And as I went deeper and deeper into their lives, there were points where their characters were so clear in their work that it was almost repelling. And fortunately, I think for all of them, I came out the other side of that and with a sort of renewed respect for... For what they'd been through and especially once i started looking at the childhoods and the kind of family legacies and really seeing how they'd got themselves into these positions how they'd got themselves into these sort of situations
0: and i was also fascinated by the connections between so many of the writers directly mm. that i think uh, just the image of chiva and carver in the car going to buy booze oh, yeah, like, yeah. just things you would never imagine could kind of happened I suppose yeah I mean it, did you find those things out along the way or
6: yeah I, I really I mean I knew obviously that Fitzgerald and Hemingway were very close friends um but most of the other relationships I didn't know and I mean even in that reading that I just gave that when I realized that the hotel that Hemingway had been in when he got the when his father died the moment that his father died was John Cheever's drinking haunt you know that's where he came years later and those sort of those points where they crossed were really helpful for me kind of technically to build, to build this book and to keep the connections between them to make it feel like one organic whole story.
0: And you followed... I mean, you went on a very big, I won't say road trip, but it was planes, trains, kind of Train automobiles, trip, wasn't really? it? <laughs> Across America to kind of connect with the places they'd lived. I mean, how did that... I mean, it sounded like an amazing mm. journey, but how did that change how you approached some of the subject matter or influence, how you...
6: That was, really, that was really vital, both to sort of give give the book some coherence, but also, you know, I, I wanted to see the places that these things had happened, and I felt so much this was a story about American men, 20th century American men, and they came out of that land, they came out of that place, so it, it felt very important for me to give it that kind of really American feel. But the other thing is, and again, I sort of allude to it in in this reading, is all of them had an extraordinary responsiveness. They loved the landscape. They wrote about it very beautifully. They engaged with it very beautifully. And it felt like that was a way of continually reminding the reader of of these more benign sides of them at the same time as I was telling stories about, say, Raymond Carver smashing his wife's head against a sidewalk and her losing most of her blood. I mean, you know, these awful, squalid stories. If I could then come back and talk about... A more tender, gentle aspect that felt really important.
0: Do you think it was easier to be a real drinker as a writer in those periods? Hmm. Kind of from the, hmm. I suppose it's kind of 40s, 50s, 60s. That's the main yeah. kind of meat of it. Do you think it was more? I mean, cause we all watch Mad Men, and we, yeah. you know, we remember there were different attitudes to the amount people would drink or the time of the day they would start drinking and often quite hard liquor.
6: Yeah, absolutely. In comparison to And now. D- I mean, this is why I keep calling it a 20th century story. I don't think that it's something that happens now for, for various reasons and probably some quite good reasons. But you, particularly with John Berryman, who is a professor as well, you have stories of him c- phoning his students drunk and threatening to murder them and, you know, these things that now you'd be in a law court, you know, you'd be sued. And... That that's where I think probably we're a bit more um a bit more careful about those sort of things. And I think there's a lot of um a sort of the amount of drinking that was happened meant that people who were managing to maintain their drinking would who were managing to sort of not become alcoholics would kind of collude with the alcoholics. So you get things like um Saul Bellow saying, Oh, John Berryman needed to drink like that. I mean, no, he didn't need to drink like that. It wasn't supporting the production mm. of his poetry in any way, and I think that's that's something that has changed. It's oh, a kind clearer. of myth-making kind yeah. of around that connection. Yeah.
0: And you had... I mean, the book also explores your own kind of relationship mm-hmm. to this territory. Do you want to say a little bit about... Yeah, yeah, I'm that happy to.
6: Things? So I, was, um, I was raised in an alcoholic family, and um, it, there was periods where it was really quite quite violent and quite frightening and my family and I hadn't the situation had ended we hadn't really discussed it ever again and part of this journey I do with my mother she came out with me and we went to where Raymond Carver lived so this is this sort of landscape of recovery and we started to talk about what had happened and what was fascinating about that because so much of this book is about contradictory stories false stories alcoholic lies around things that did happen, it's it's sort of trying to pick away at what, what really went on. And to my amazement, my kind of narrative of what had gone on between us, what had gone on within the family home, her story was completely different. And in fact, what, what I didn't put in the book, because I found it later, was a newspaper report of the arrest that brought the whole thing to, to a head. And that story was <laughs> totally different again. Like, none of us had really remembered how bad it was. So that, yeah, I think... The, the, it's a very small element of the book, really, but I think, it's, I think it's vital. Thank
0: you. Sorry, I have no idea what that was. <laughs> Sometimes it <something laughs> was something hammering in. Um, that's great, Olivia. Thank you very much. Um, I'm now delighted to welcome George Shaw to the stage to award the Gordon Byrne Prize 2014. Please welcome George Shaw.
7: have to check if I've done my flies up I've just been to the loo um, in the true spirit of my life I think to be given the shitty job following the music and delivering bad news to a lot of people possibly um, but I can remember the last time I was in this neck of the woods um, I was not getting the Turner Prize so, <laughs> so it kind of uh, so if people want to join me in the bar for a loser's drink Sorry, loses orange oh, or juice. Possibly, <laughs> um, I thought I was asked to do this because I kind of vaguely knew Gordon. Um, well, I kind of got to know him quite well. Um, he was quite a good person to to know, really. Um, and I'm just—I try- was trying to think of how I first. Um, sorry, if anybody's got a last bus to catch, I do go on. If anyone's been to Ken Dodd, that's kind of. Um, so I was. Um, I was reading about. Well, I sat at home. I was probably not even at... No, maybe at secondary school, yeah. And my dad said, oh, we should read this. It was Sunday Times colour supplement, which was the only bit of class that was delivered to our house shortly before the Murdoch takeover. My dad never refused to take it then. Um, so he said, read this. And I read it, and it was an article about um, the Yorkshire Ripper and his obsession with uh, Louis Tussaud's waxworks in Morecambe. As a family, we'd just been there which I thought was a kind of family out-and-out. But this was all about his connection to the Yorkshire Ripper, who kind of, um, I suppose he dominated the landscape of me growing up in the Midlands, or people growing up in the, all over England, really. And just remember thinking, well, who's wrote that? Well, first of all, I thought it was the same bloke that presented um, the Krypton Factor. I thought, God, that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a dark side to his, uh, to his career. And... Um, Gradually found out that this was a book, and I think it came from the library. It was got next to Dennis Wheatley's The Devil and All His Works, and it came. and I read it, and I remember thinking I was quite interested in hi- in that sort of stories of serial killers and that sort of thing, as a as a teenager would be, um, in between pulling the wings of flies and uh, terrorising the girls next door. Um, but it was uh, it was mainly, I think, what attracted me to it was it's the portrait it painted of. Not so much British life, because I didn't know anything about anything other than English life. It was a landscape that it painted, and I never saw it reflected anywhere else. I didn't see it reflected in the paintings I saw when I went to galleries. I didn't see it reflected in not a great deal of photographs I was looking at the time. And probably I didn't see it reflected in the music that was in the charts or the books I was reading at that particular moment. What I came to respect as a result of that, I suppose from reading other books from Gordon's, was... in a way, a refusal to accept a clichéd and sort of bullshitting view of the life I was leading and the life of the people around me were leading. I recently came across, because I kind of do a bit of painting in my spare time, um, came across this. I went to see the Constable show at the the, the proper Tate. And um, the Tate I used to go to as a kid. And This was, a, this was a, an interview in the paper by Frank Auerbach talking about Constable. And it called to mind something about Gordon. It is not so much about the more well-known qualities, the clouds and the freshness and the light. It is more that I can't think of another painter who has invested quite so much in every single image. If I look at Crossing the Brook or Salisbury Cathedral, I am struck by that sense of how Constable has gone round and round and round the subject. He seems to have walked every path, measured every distance between every tree. Everything has been worked for and made personal, so you sometimes feel that Constable's own body is somehow in, inside the landscape there. And Auerbach goes on then to dismiss Turner's flights of fancy, as he calls them, and praises Constable for his burrowing. One of the things that used to sort of come up in the conversations I had with Gordon was a great suspicion of philosophical flights of fancy, um, and I'm reminded of an anecdote we both shared, which kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Roy, Cr- Ray Crudders in North of England Home Service. And it's a story about Les Dawson, and it's a little-known fact about Les Dawson that he was a philosophy student in Paris in the 1950s. And as a way... and No, 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 straight up. Um, and to, f- to fund his philosophical studies at the Sorbonne, He used to play piano in the brothels and nightclubs of Paris. (laughs) And in this anecdote, he tells how he often finds himself alone at all times in his life, staring up at this overhanging firmament, lost in wonder, perhaps, at the majesty of the solar system, the incomprehensibility of the universe, and thinking, always thinking, I must get a roof put on this outside toilet. (laughs) And perhaps it was this image of Gordon that made me, when I was probably in advancing middle age, against every fibre of my body, throw myself at him at some private view when somebody pointed out that that was Gordon Byrne. And I said, uh, I'm George Shaw. And he kind of looked at me as if to say, you look quite good for a dead Irish playwright, but that's (laughs) going... but he knew my paintings, and I took great pride in the fact that he knew them, and that he liked them. And we went on to meet in some grotty pub somewhere a couple of days later, and he said he would like to visit my studio. And at that time, my studio was in North Nottinghamshire, which was enough to put most hackney hacks coming anywhere near my studio. In fact, those are the people that did do, came, met me at the train station, took a photo, and then went back home. And then they seemed to write this very thorough article about me and my work. When Gordon came, he stayed for three days, and he looked at every aspect of the little local life that I was leading in North Nottinghamshire at that time. And it's funny, sitting here here thinking about, listening to the authors reading and talking about their work, because it reminds me, shortly after Gordon's visit at that point, I, I can remember getting a phone call from him. I was sat in the Sun Inn, which appears in D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers, sat in that pub in a mining, midland mining town, surrounded by rolling landscape of the English landscape. He phoned me on the mobile phone that afternoon and told me to go home and watch the telly, and that was the 9th of September. So I went home and saw something very different to the English landscape that I was used to. So see everything that seemed to be happening here on this stage. Um, and people were talking about, seem to be reflected in that kind of vision, almost like prophetic vision um, that Gordon had. And sometimes I feel that I'm living in the world that he described many, many years ago. Uh, So it's great to see the vision that he had and the imagination that he had as well um, alive and kicking in the books that we've heard of tonight. And I suppose in some senses it makes his absence in my going to the pub, that little bit more bearable. Anyway, I suppose I've got my Mel and Sue moment with the, with the bake-off. <laughs> and uh, I was reminded as well, when when I was kind of waiting, not getting the Turner Prize, um, that it was called the Turner Prize because eventually everyone gets a turn, if you live long enough. And also it was a, somebody whispered in my ear that evening and it's a, that it was good to remember that all artistic prizes whether they be literary or visual arts or whatever are like hemorrhoids and that in time every arsehole will get one <laughs> so with that in mind <laughs> sorry 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 the gordon bright gordon Byrne prize 2014 goes to the wake by paul kingsworth
5: Uh, um, well, so after the hemorrhoid joke, um, should I should I accept this or not? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, well, who cares? Um, I, I'm genuinely, actually, not. Uh, I'm genuinely <laughs> very surprised. Uh, so I, I haven't written a big long speech. This is good, isn't it? Um, I have never won a book prize before. Um, never been nominated for a book prize before. Um, except the Booker Prize, that doesn't count um, <laughs> because the short list was not nearly as good as this one um, and I honestly I, it, it's very surprising because the other books that are on this list just sound so damn good and I haven't read any of them and I'm going to read all of them now so uh, yeah it, I'm, it's terrific, thank you very much um, I, I just want to quickly thank everybody involved, especially the Trust um, and the judges for their impeccable taste um, I do want to support I I want to thank all the people who supported this book through the crowdfunding process. We did talk a little bit about that earlier. It wouldn't have been published at all if about 450 people hadn't taken a risk on something weird that I hadn't written yet. And they did, Uh, and that's quite something. Um, And I also want to thank everybody at Unbound who also took a risk. Um, which seems to have paid off this time around, <laughs> especially John Mitchinson, who was the publisher who recognised that there was something about this book, and Rachel Kerr, who's here tonight, who uh, spent a huge amount of time editing it and promoting it and rushing around the country, and I hope it's been worth it. Um, uh, what, what else to say? I also want to thank my wife, Nav, who's down here uh, and is lovely and has put up with all the things that writers' partners have to put up with. Um, and I haven't got much else to say except that funny thing about writing a novel is you don't quite write it yourself other things help you to write it Um, and so i'm going to dedicate this award to the lost gods of england thank you
0: It's hard to follow that for the lost gods of England, but I would just like to thank um, the Trust, Faber and Faber, um, also Durham Distillery for our gin tonight. Thank you very much, John Chadwick. I think we've all really enjoyed it. Um, and the Town Hall for hosting such a lovely um, event for us this evening. So thank you, everyone. Thank you all for coming. And Weldon Paul. Thank you.